Welcome, welcome, welcome to a uh, Homefront Histories. We have been, all three of us have been mental busy, hence the <laughs> slight delay uh, in getting the next episode out. Uh, so apologies for that. And indeed, we are without Robbie uh, today, who is still mental busy. Uh, so he's, he's yeah. trusting. He's doing some tonight. fancy stuff, though, isn't he? He's doing some fancy stuff. Yeah. I know. Check him out. Yeah. Check him out. I'm Very sure he'll impressive. give us an update on that when he's back uh, next time. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Uh, so you've only you've got Chris and I today. Uh, hopefully, uh, doing doing the best that we can. Um, but I think uh, we've got a really interesting thing to talk about. Something that uh, I don't think gets anywhere near enough attention, and is frankly potentially all around us. Yeah, exactly that. Chris, what are we talking about today? Over the past couple of weeks, because I'm a bit of a boring sod, um, I've been focusing on uh, metal railings. Yes, Chris. Yeah. Come yeah, on. Um, this, is, this is the kind of granular detail I want to get into. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, this is one thing that's been at the forefront of my mind for a very long time now. So, yeah, probably one of the most extensive archaeological remnants of the Second World War, you know, that I'm going to say survives pretty much everywhere. And I'm sure people point out to me that they don't survive everywhere. Um, but are the <laughs> sections and remains of cut-off railings that you find, you know, pretty much across the country. So everything yeah, from correct. parks, you know, council buildings, front gardens, school playgrounds. Um, the remains of, like, removed railings and gates can be found pretty much anywhere if you look for them. So I, um, I remember as a kid, the school playground that I went to, they had... Um, you could clearly see in the brick wall that the railings have been removed and replaced by modern railings, you know. Um, yeah. And it just even, always... even at my um, at my local church in yeah. my town, all the way round, there are just little knobs of metal left where they'd hacked hacked yeah. the railings out. Exactly. If you look in close detail, you can also start to work out if you're like me um, what was used to remove the railings. So sometimes you see hack marks where they used a hammer and chisel. Sometimes you can see relatively smooth wavy lines where they've used an oxyacetylene torch. So if you're massively boring, you can actually start to pick apart what tools we use to remove the railings. But I wasn't going to mention that. Um, that's different level. That's different level. That is, that. Um, that's the level of detail that is required for archaeology these days. Um, but yeah, you can start to work out what tools were used, you know, and um, get an idea of how long it would have taken to remove the railings. Um, but yeah, like I say, um, so been one of the most numerous uh, remnants of the Second World War. They also actually represent probably one of the most accessible remains of the Second World War as well, because they are literally everywhere. You know, you can see these all over the place. Um, I think one of my earliest memories, or in relation to the Second World War, was, was my grandparents telling me about, in my local village where I used to live in Barnsley, about the railings that were removed. And they, uh, my granddad especially, he remembered the railings being removed um, at some point, told me this story. And since then, throughout pretty much throughout my life, I've been spotting this wherever I go. Yeah. So, you know, this removal is often associated with the procurement of scrap metal uh, to help the war effort. Um, and, you know, in the point of this podcast, we'll have a bit of a closer look at that. But I've heard many explanations for why the metal, well, what the metal was used for, including, you know, the main one that it was used to produce munitions like bombs and bullets, um, but also that the metal went into the production of agricultural equipment. And yeah. then in other cases, it was like simply gathered and dumped in either the Thames or the sea or elsewhere. And that the railings were simply removed as a complete pop propaganda exercise. Yeah. But, um, Wasn't it? I, thought, I thought they made spitfires. They, this is the thing. You hear so much. Um, <laughs> and it's one of those things was where... Was that pots and pans? That might be, that might that be pots, pots and, and pans. pans. Yeah. 
And it's hands made Spitfires. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> that, not they? railings, yeah. The um the bit too heavy to make Spitfires from a railings, uh, apparently. Um so yeah, and as with all these, you know, these accounts, they rarely come with any source, you know, any form of primary source. So obviously someone doesn't carry around a big bundle of documents with them. They're often but yeah. these accounts are often anecdotal, you know, as with a lot of this stuff is. Um mm. Which is, you know, uh, it's this is clearly a huge problem, not just, yeah, well, with wartime in general, isn't it? A lot of it's based on anecdotal um, history, you know, with little um, little research done to try and corroborate things. So one of the things that's always, yeah, always been on my mind is how we go about uh, investigating this further. And over the years, I've, you know, kind of dabbled, but it's one of those subjects that's so big that it, you could easily do this as your entire profession, just looking at this scheme as it was and you know in my work i haven't generally got the time to do that but i thought i'd try and like make a start with this podcast and given i've got the opportunity to do that you know i've uh yeah opened up a massive can of worms now uh brilliant let's, so, let's dive into that rabbit hole excellent fantastic so hopefully this will act as the catalyst for other people to start to look at these things in a more local local level because uh one of the things i found that i'll mention later on is that a lot of the information must be held locally regarding the schemes that went on but in this podcast we'll have a look at the kind of the national scheme from what i've been able to find out so far so um given how extensive the scheme was you know surely it's time to actually try and get to the bottom of where the metal went or how the scheme was organized to just try and skim the surface try and work out what's going you know and like i say i've only just scratch the surface with this it is a massively um, yeah. complex operation you know and uh, i've only just started to look at the national picture using available sources of information one of the things that uh kind of drew my attention to this further was the mention in um the world at war series um but i think it was max aiken the son of lord beanbrook yeah. who was um i think it was a battle of britain pilot from what i remember it was yeah ah, there we go Cool. And he specifically mentioned about the aluminium pots and pans um, salvage campaign. Yeah, by Lord Beaverbrook, apparently. And, by his dad, yeah. 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 And according to this, you know, uh, people donated thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of um, aluminium pots and pans. And they were absolutely useless for producing Spitfires because they weren't of the right grade of aluminium required to produce aircraft. Uh, yeah, yeah, and he, yeah. he literally says it was just an entire propaganda exercise to bring everyone together. So I, I suspect that's had... You know, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Because I, he did. He, I think he literally says that his father was a master of propaganda, and this yeah. was just basically, as you say, bringing yeah. the population into one effort, bringing them together, rolling the population, making them, making it seem like a really kind of desperate situation. Yeah. Um, and and you know, keeping everyone on their toes. That's that's exactly what he says. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, and you know, obviously, people have seen that, and I think there's a lot of kind of regurgitation regurgitation of that and it's applied to the railings yeah. thing as well but you know looking into this situation you know through several sources well through um, a couple of sources of information it's just been it's massively complex and we're just going to look primarily at scrap railings but you know i always like to when i start my research if possible try and start at the top and work out what the national le- legislation was and see how this filtered down to a local level if possible so um the way to approach this uh in lieu of having access to the national archives i've start and kind of taking robbie's lead as well his previous research uh i've used um hansard which is the i think it's the archive of the uh of house of um 
House of Commons and the House of Lords. So this is like That's all it, the minutes yeah. um, from every debate that they've ever had is yeah. recorded. Great. Um, it's such a good, and it's all online. It's such a great yeah. resource. It's fantastic. So yeah, you, uh, if you just search Hansard uh, online, you can access all these files and it's such an amazing source of information. But often you'll find like there's so much information there that you'll never troll it. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought I'd try and get to the bottom of what was going on. So Searching through Hansard, I found the first mention of um, suggesting the removal of railings um, on there. And it was, interestingly enough, not actually related to scrap metal, but actually um, instead to ensuring better access to air raid um, trenches within parks in London. So on the 22nd of February 1939, so this is pre-Second World War, it was raised by uh, Mr. Turton in a debate with the First Commissioner of works, which was Sir Philip Sassoon, that better access to air raid shelters was required and that railings should be removed to allow this in certain parks in London, which I found massively mm-hmm. interesting. I was not expecting that. Um, no. But that has made me think now how much of this railing removal that we see today was undertaken to create better access to air raid facilities and air raid shelters. So, you know, that's another aspect which I not expected coming from yeah. this. Yeah. So they would move. They'd remove it around a park. So in those early days, they were kind of digging trenches in yeah. parks, open they? spaces. So they'd yeah. Remove them. Yeah. So they'd remove them so people could just sprint into them without having to go through like a narrow without gate. To, with yeah, instead of creating a bottleneck, which can be very dangerous, yeah. huge crowds of people into one area. Yeah. The yeah. um the idea was to remove the railings to provide better access. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So I was not expecting that. It was one. One of the first things, so what I did is did a search and then went through it chronologically in order. And that was literally the first one I found. So that was really quite interesting. So, yeah, the 22nd of February, 1939, was that discussion. Yeah, that's very early. Very, very early, yes. So that really got me thinking. I, I've not gone off on a tangent on this, looking into this in more detail. I said I wanted to try and stay focused on the whole scrap thing. So. Yeah. As I went on, it came pretty clear that the railings themselves could be removed or requisitioned under um, Regulation 50 of the Defence General Regulations of 1939. And I haven't had a chance to look into this uh, in any detail at all. If any listeners have a copy of that um, and this section of the Defence Regs, then you know, let us know on Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, there was an official regulation in place to allow the... Um, uh, requisitioning, as they call it, or the removal of railings as scrap. So that's very interesting as well. Yeah. Always carry your gas mask. See that your blackout is complete. Above all, don't stand staring at the sky. Get to cover at once. The first mention of uh, the removal of actual railings to provide scrap to replenish metal stocks uh, that I was able to find uh, came on the 15th of March, 1940. So this was during a debate with Herbert Morrison um, and uh, the MP for Jarrow, who was Ellen Wilkinson, raised the following. So she said, um, I would also like to ask what is being done with regard to scrap steel. As it happens, the British steel industry is very much dependent upon scrap than are the Germans. The Germans are using lower grade ore. It is a... Um, it is tragic to remember that some of us fought desperately three years ago for the use of the Brasset process in the making of steel, which would have enabled low-grade ores to be used in this country, which is very interesting. She didn't say that bit. Um, and to think what the erection of steelworks in Jarrow in 1933 or 34 would have meant to this country today. We could have had... Um, 
we could have uh, used the stuff that was there in our own soil instead of now having to look around for our own scrap. There ought not to be a single iron lamp standing erected in this country while the war lasts. The Germans can use concrete, hooray, concrete, and have produced something uh, more artistic than our standards, so referring to the um, sing- the iron lamps. And there ought to yeah. be a movement for taking down all our lampposts, except for those being used in the blackout. We might even pull up the railings in our parks if it meant we would not be faced with the trouble of getting machinery, factories, and shipbuilding going with such a shortage of material. When will the government take some national lead in this matter and not allow private firms to collect scrap and force up prices? So okay. that is very, very interesting, isn't it? That that's from 1914. So, that's yeah. So she's she's saying she, we in order for the still for in order to produce steel, we need scrap iron desperately. But the Germans have got a different way of producing it. Yeah, that's well, not allowing them to do that. We yeah. we didn't. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So interesting. um, and this process could have been implemented in 1933 or 34. Uh, so yeah, that is extremely yeah. interesting, isn't it? That so that might provide one of the reasons why um, scrap metal was needed. So I, you know, it's one of the things yeah, yeah, you just yeah. don't consider. You know this. This whole background is rarely considered. It's just they remove railings because they need a metal. But then you look into it in more detail, and you can see how this easily becomes a massive rabbit hole. And you know, someone yes, could do a indeed. PhD on this. You know, someone could yeah, correct. write an entire book on and this. It, and and you and, and it's one of those things. And I think we'll probably come across this a lot in this podcast. Mm. Is that it's one of those things where people walk past, and and the, the, I'd say ninety percent of the population won't even know that railings are missing from a certain. There's only a, you, you have to be a certain level of geek. To notice yeah. the, the, this stuff, and then, but then that's on level. Get you, you, you don't even consider why they've been. You just think, well, that was during the war. They removed the rate. Yeah, you know, yeah. they removed, removed the gates. I mean, it's just one of those things that happened. Understanding a little bit more why they're removed starts to put it in a bit more like like a lot of the stuff we talk about. Yeah, starts yeah. to put it in a bit more context. Starts exactly. to make a bit more sense. Starts to yeah. make it like less bumbling inefficiency again. Yeah, and it moves away Actually, from this this whole propaganda thing as well. It clearly wasn't. Yeah. propaganda and it was it's extremely clever as with all things yeah. during the second one you know it's um necessity is the mother of invention isn't it you know yeah absolutely that debate took place on the 15th of march 1940 this was followed on the 18th of march by another debate on scrap metal where the sources of scrap metal were considered and debated so uh, this included a debate about the removal of un- unneeded, and this is a key term that keeps on propping up popping up is unneeded railings it wasn't all railings it was railings that weren't needed as well as uh, disused um, tram tracks Um, so i'll come back to that in a second so you also see the specific mention of disused tram tracks or tramway tracks which ties in with kind i'm thinking it ties in with the wartime uh, construction wartime defenses because you see a lot of this tram track used in roadblocks as rebar and anti-tank blocks so they they were clearly removing these uh, tramways at the time and then repurposing the metal which is really quite interesting during this debate, it was stated by a Mr. Bergen uh, that I'm hoping to get hold of something like 100,000 tonnes altogether all over the country, of which approximately a half will be from the London area. And this was relating directly to uh, 100,000 tonnes of disused tramway track alone. Right. So again, two key points here, unneeded railings. So one of the things that you see elsewhere is that they would only remove the railings if they weren't needed for, for example, for security, or if there there was a heritage requirement, um, you know, it's the reason why Buckingham Palace didn't lose its railings. 
So right. it wasn't... And presumably, presumably why zoos didn't. Yeah, yeah. And places where they require, you know, prisons didn't lose the bars. There was clearly a process here in determining what was required. So, like I say, it was the tramway track that really grabbed my attention because when you start to look at wartime defences, especially anti-invasion defences, you see this stuff as a material crop up all over the place. And they were clearly surplus to requirements. Um, But it just makes me wonder, it it clearly demonstrates already that this tramway track clearly wasn't... um, I don't know, the word's not necessary, but clearly wasn't, let's just say, as a, to try and summarise, just wasn't quite good enough to make munitions from. So this scrap metal wasn't just being sourced already for the production of munitions, and we can clearly see that by the reuse of tramway track in the anti-invasion defences, I think. That's um, in summation, let's say. Yes, yes. Um, But that figure as well there, so they were hoping nationally, uh, on the 18th of March, 940, to get 100,000 tonnes of, um, wow. you know, disused tramway tracks. So that gives you an idea of the scale of this as an operation, you yeah. know. Yeah, 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 absolutely massive. Absolutely massive. Yeah. And as we go through, we keep on seeing, you know, these massive figures of Mel's um, that were, you know, trying to, they were trying to source. So uh, moving on, on to the 8th of May, 1940. So this is, we start to see this um, things ramp up in 1940. So I think we can safely say that the scheme started around March 1940, which is quite, quite a useful, you know, starting off point mm. in terms of the chronology of this. Yeah. Um, and this is where we start to see the first mention of actual official appeals being made for scrap metal. Um, so again, scrap metals were debated in the House of Commons on the 8th of May, 1940, and the brilliantly named uh, Rear Admiral Tufton Beamish, you don't get names Come like on, that son. anymore, do you? Love that. Yeah, that's a fantastic name, isn't it? Um, was asked for a statement on the progress of uh, the collection of scrap metal. Um, and Edward Bergen, who was the at the time the Minister of Supply, responded with uh, the collection of ferrous scrap rose from 4,800 uh, tonnes in January to 8,900 tonnes in March, and of non-ferrous scrap from 532 tonnes in January to 709 tonnes in March. Right. It is expected that with the additional schemes recently launched, the amounts collected will again be increased substantially. Some quantities of old railings have been obtained and an exhibition, I'd love to know where this is, uh, which has been open this week, will show the advantages to be obtained by scrapping iron railings in favour of other materials. So again, this is we're seeing an actual scheme nice. being formed here, along with an exhibition, you know, to highlight. Okay, how? clearly a lot of effort going to this and again those figures which i won't repeat again give you an idea of um not only the numbers of materials that were being sourced but also the fact that they were keeping track of how much material was being sourced as well so they weren't just yeah. dragging this yeah. stuff you know cutting it all down and not processing it again it was this key thing of they were processing and keeping track of things it wasn't as simple as just you know cutting down railings and sticking them in a pile so yeah, yeah. So like say so you can see how I'm just scratching the surface with this. Yeah. So um later in this debate, uh Mr. A. Edwards uh, later stated, um, is the minister aware that while railings are being pulled down in some parts, they have been erected in other parts. <laughs> Will he see that <laughs> no one is allowed to put up railings? <laughs> so not only do we have the removal of railings, according to this debate, 
in places um railings were being taken down and in other places they were popping back up again so yeah there was this raised issues about a co- coordination of efforts you know where scrap metal has been removed and then railings that are made from the same metal are going up elsewhere so i found that quite uh <laughs> quite funny you know uh and the uh, when you look at the debates they're full of these little uh little kind of like anecdotes of you know um which are often quite hilarious you know like yeah, about are you aware that scrap merchants are hoarding metal and all this type of stuff to make a bit more money? Yeah. You know? It's uh like I say I recommend people go through Hansard and have a look at this because there's some really there's like I say, you can troll this for ages. There's so much information. Um <laughs> so it's also during these debates that we actually see the mentions of the scrapping of First World War era trophy guns as well, and equipment cra- captured from the Germans um also been melted down as well, which I found interesting. And, you know, at the end of the, well, sorry, in the post-war period in the First World War, you do see like trophy tanks and all this stuff from, you know, captured German yeah, guns. Yeah, yeah. And today they are relatively rare because they were disposed of. And today we see, you know, very few of these uh, trophy weapons surviving, presumably because they were melted down during the Second World War, which is, there's a bit of irony to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but it also I'm, got me thinking is, why the hell didn't they do this in the First World War? Yeah. Was there a, better supply of metal you know and i was uh, you know i've done a lot of work on the home front in the first world war and i can't think of any any time where they were cutting down railings for metal as a source of metal so that you know that's another aspect of this is the why is there no kind of cross comparison with the first world war but hopefully someone out there has got an idea of whether any yeah. scrap um you know any such thing happened during the first world war because I can't for life in me think of an example of that. Interesting. So yeah. Maybe, yeah. So presume, so all this scrap, all this scrap iron, the, the railings, the trams, mm. uh, tram tracks, this yep. is all being used for the for the steel industry. None of this stuff is going to Spitfires or helmets or munitions. This is all for a ingredient within the steel industry that's desperately needed to produce good quality steel. Well, this is the interesting thing. I don't find any mention during these debates of where the metal is going. So I can only assume it was being used for, you know, the broader steel industry. Um, right, I think, right. Yeah. So that is the odd thing. There is no specific mention for what I've seen. You know, there's, I'm not saying there isn't a mention because I haven't looked at everything yet. But yeah. I, I, during my trawl of Hansard, I've found no specific mention in this period so far of the use of um, the metal for munitions or anything else, which is rather interesting. Yeah, Um, okay. So, yeah, uh, so this gives us, again, as I've already mentioned, a good indicator that, you know, the uh, supply of scrap metal through the removal of railings was considered initially during some time in mid-1940, early mid-1940. So moving on a bit further, uh, on the 3rd of July, we actually start to see the first issues arising around the gathering of scrap metal. And this uh, relates to um, large quantities of unused scrap being debated in Parliament now. So apparently in London alone, some 2,000 and 3,000 tonnes of scrap metal were lying idle and hadn't been collected by the Ministry of Supply. And this uh, this debate um, on the 3rd of July 1940 highlighted that high-quality brass scrap, uh, so that's brass scrap metal, was being snapped up uh, uh, readily, but poor quality scrap metals were largely being left behind. So... This hints now that of munition production. So they would need brass for shell cases and a whole range of things. Right. You know, brass is a right, useful right. material. So that does kind of hint that um, the um, things like brass, scrap brass metal was going into the munitions production, but it doesn't overtly say 
because of. But I think we can infer that um, yes, correct, the brass correct. scrap has been so. Out of all the scrap that's coming in, they're deliberately picking out the brass to be reused. You know, potentially for munitions, which makes perfect sense but everything else has kind of been well poor quality scrap metals as they say have been left behind in large numbers which is quite interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. but again this is something to be looked at in more detail so um the first mention that i could find um of iron railings for munitions came on the 7th of october 1942 um and again this is just what I found. This it might this isn't definitive. You know, someone else might find an earlier mention of this, but the earliest one I could find was that on the seventh of October, nineteen forty-two, the actual use of the iron railings for munitions was raised in Parliament. This was um, done by a Sir A. Duncan, and he responded to a question of how much scrap had been provided for munitions production uh, as of um, the date of October nineteen forty-two, and he said um, in response to this question. Um, over 250,000 um, tonnes of railings have been consigned to the works producing iron and steel, while about 73,000 tonnes remain on the reserve dumps. These are constantly being called upon. Uh, the entire output of iron and steel is used to meet essential wartime requirements. So he acknowledged issues uh, with using the scrap metal for production of munitions. Um, so someone said, can this all this be used for munitions? Uh, or are there any issues with this? And he acknowledged this by saying... Yes, sir. It is found that certain preparations have to be done upon it, and it is being done at the dump. So okay. um, he clearly states here that not all of the metal is being used for munitions production, and there is some element of preparation required to yeah, prepare it for um, use in munitions. Hello. Uh, I hope you enjoyed part one of our Railings and the Homefront special. Be sure to join us again for part two next week. As always, keep it Homefront History. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And thanks for listening.